we've been in a series called Trajectory as we talk about where we're headed. And really, it's the idea of we're talking about, as a church, what do we want to value? And the simple answer is we want to value what God values, that, that there are certain things that God cares about. And so we want to be a church that cares about those same things. And so we've talked about the Bible, and we've talked about people. Um, we t- last week, we talked about being simple or being intentional. And this week, we're talking about commitment, that God is committed to us. And so as a church, in response, we want to be committed to him. So if you have your Bible, go to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And then also, just a note, right after I read those passages, I'm going to turn to Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, so you can just turn in your Bible. They'll also be up on the screen. So let me read this text, Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. It says, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, how many of you have ever made a commitment in your life at any point? Cool, everybody. Like, you committed to come to church today. I don't know why, but you did. Um, We all make commitments all the time, and correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes we make commitments that absolutely backfire on us, right? Like, decisions that we made that later on we say, man, I wish I wouldn't have committed to that, or I wish I wouldn't have done that. And you can probably think of some big ones, and you can think of some really silly ones, right? Like, for me, when I was a sophomore in college, my roommates and I committed to go to Whataburger at 11 p.m. to get taquitos at least three times a week, minimum, okay? And so we went so much that there was the, the drive through lady, her name was Susie, okay? And so we'd get to the drive through and we'd hear her voice, and we'd yell, Susie, Susie! And she would make us these fat taquitos, like three times the size of a normal taquito, okay? Do you think I enjoyed that decision three months later? <laughs> yeah, probably, but no, like... The reality was, I was always exhausted. Me and my roommates, we were tired, like, didn't know why we were feeling what we were feeling. And then we had gained a lot of weight. And so, really quickly, we regretted those decisions. But we do. We make commitments all the time. Like, some of you have a strange, unjustified commitment to a sports team, right? That you don't know why you're committed to that team, because they always lose every year. And you're still committed to them, Texas Rangers fans, right? You're still committed, and I applaud you. I applaud you. But we make commitments to places we eat, to shows that we watch, that I'm going to watch this show, and I'm not going to watch that show. We make commitments to certain hairstyles, right? Our certain clothing styles. Like, how many of you, at one point in your life, had a mullet? (laughs) Do you regret that decision? Some of you are like, no, I looked good, right? But some of you legitimately regret that decision. I know for me, I'm a 90s kid, 
And so, growing up, bowl haircuts were like the thing that was in. I don't know if you remember that. Bowl haircuts was the stuff, okay? And so, me and my friends, we all had our bowl haircuts. And then my nephew, who's around the same age as me, um, one time he came to me and he said, hey, let's, let's get our, our hair like frosted, like highlights in our hair. And I said, bro, I'm in. Let's do it, okay? So I committed to getting highlights in my hair, and I have a picture for you. This is the result. Steve, if you want to hit that picture. Yeah. <laughs> Look at that kid, okay? With his, with his little haircut, with the highlights. Like, that is a decision that you regret for the rest of your life, okay? And then years later, later you show people the picture to show off how ridiculous you looked, okay? And so you can take that off now. Um, and so there are things in life that we regret, right? Commitments that we make that we're not really proud of. There's the small ones that are silly, but then there's the big ones too. The big commitments of life, like marriage, to commit yourself to someone, to love them forever without, with, without any, I don't know, without anything holding on to it, like, like you're committed to them no matter what, to care for them, to love in sickness and health and all that stuff, like your kids, that you would orient your life around another human being or several of them, right? And you would care for them, you would protect them, you would teach them, that you would put their needs in front of yours. Um, It could be your career, that you've said, here's my set of skills, here's what I'm passionate about, and here's what I'm going to go for in life. Like, that's a big commitment, right? That you would set your life on a trajectory of a career, now, here's the deal. When one or several of those go bad, we get a very jaded view of commitment. Things like your marriage. Something happens with your kids. You get fired from your job, right? When bad, bad things happen in the midst of a great commitment, that can be really tough, right? And some of you have been there. Like, when you think about, when you hear the phrase, God's commitment, God is committed to you, For some of us in here, that doesn't hold a lot of weight because you've committed or someone has committed to you before and you've been hurt. And so I'm not a fool to think that everyone in here is just happy-go-lucky flowers and unicorns that God has committed to you. Like, for some of you, it's hard to think about God's commitment to you and to really believe that because the the reality is That the trust of the commitment is dependent on the character of the one giving that commitment, right? Like, for example, if if you're a Cowboys fan and you come up to me and you say, hey, the Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl this year, I would say to you, what about their track record has told you that that's going to happen in the last 20 years? Nothing. They're horrible, right? Every year they disappoint you. And the same with me. If you knew that I had bad character... Like, if, if you said, hey, I know that guy has bad character, nothing that I say up here would matter to you, right? Commitment is dependent on the character of the one giving the commitment. And so what I want to show you this morning, I want to show you the character of God. And I want to prove to you that God's commitment is true, that his commitment matters because of who he is. Is. And so that when you walk out of here this morning, there is no doubt in your mind that God is committed to you, not just because of on face value of the commitment, but because of who he is. I want to prove it to you. I want to show you that God is committed and God is faithful to you. And I'm going to do that um, by showing you three things all under an umbrella. Okay, so the umbrella is that God is unchanging. 
that day in and day out, yesterday, today, and tomorrow, God does not change. He is consistent in who he is. And so he's unchanging in his purposes, he's unchanging in his promises, and he's unchanging in his love. And so just forewarning, I'm going to blow through a lot of scriptures, okay? So I don't encourage you, um, don't try to follow, like you might have been really good at Bible drill or something like that as a kid. Don't try to follow. I would encourage you, they'll be on the screen, write them down, okay? I'll send you my sermon if you want it, but, but don't try to follow along. I want you to listen to the word of God and have it have an impact on you. So God is unchanging. Think about that. Every day, me and you change all the time. Like you think about who you were 10 years ago, you're not the same person anymore. You're not the same person you were two years ago. Every day, every year, we change. There's something different about us. God is not like that. He is unchanging. Malachi 3.6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift from above is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Think about this. As time goes on, God does not grow, <laughs> Right? Just like we do. We grow as time goes on. We learn from our mistakes. God doesn't make the mistakes. And so he does not grow with the time. He's consistent in who he is. And God is not, does not change for the better or for the worse, like we do. Like he, he can't change for the worse, right? Because that would mean that we have no foundation and hope for who God is. Like, I can't, we can't go around going, oh, man, I hope God's not worse tomorrow than he was today, right? And he doesn't change for the better either, because that means he wasn't, wouldn't be the very best today. He does not change. His purposes, his promises, and his love, all of these are under the umbrella of that God does not change, all of which is the foundation of his commitment to us. And so God's purposes are unchanging. Think about that. God's, what God aims to do does not change, and they're always achieved, that what God wants to accomplish in the world does not change. Psalm 33, 11, okay? The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. And then Isaiah 46, 8, I love this verse, or these three verses. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. I will accomplish my purpose. Calling a bird a prey from the east, a man of counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. That God governs every single detail on the globe, and he always is achieved. His, his aims are always achieved. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11 says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the ear, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. And he says this, it shall not return empty, 
but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it, for which I sent it. Think about this, okay? What if God purposed to make us his? What if he purposed to set you free from your anxiety? What if he purposed to set you free from your sin? What if he purposed to give you peace? What if he purposed to send his son to die on a cross, raise from the grave, and take the payment of sin that we deserve? What if he purposed that? Well, he did, (laughs) and he did accomplish it. Because what he purposes, he accomplishes. So think about God's commitment to you, that he has purpose to save you, that he has purpose to bring you in as a son or a daughter. How many times do you doubt, do we as the church doubt what God has done in us? Because he isn't doubting, right? His purposes are always achieved, and then his promises, right, the promises of God are unchanging. Psalm 33, 4, for the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. Praise God that his promises to us are not pathetic. I can't tell you how many promises I've broken in my life. Big ones all the way down to the dishwasher, right? I promised I would put the forks in a certain way, and I didn't, okay? So there are promises that I break all the time, but God does not break his promises. Consider um, Isaiah 40, 31. But they, think about this, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. School's about to start, semester's about to to go. How many of you are already exhausted? (laughs) Yeah, you're already tired. And you're not tired because you're doing so much, you're just tired thinking about all the stuff that's coming. But those, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. That's a promise. That if you'll wait for him, you'll run to him, he will renew your strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Mark eleven twenty four. 24, he says, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it, and it will be yours. <laughs> your prayers are heard. Philippians 4, 6 or 7, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Release it to God. And he says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. His unchanging promises remind us who he is, and they remind us who we are, that when we feel the enemy trying to convince us that we're something that we're not, are trying to convince us that God is something that he's not, we can remember his promises. These things that do not change, they are consistent. And then lastly, God's love for us is unchanging. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Psalm 86, 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 2 through 5, through him we have also attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, 
But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Ephesians 2, 4-5, but God being rich in mercy because of what? Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And then lastly, Romans 8, 37-39. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ our Lord. I'm sweating. <laughs> that's a lot of scripture, and that's the point. And this is, a, this is just a per, like 1% of it, of God's commitment to us. His purposes, his promises, and his love. Believe it or not, God is committed to you. Like, believe that. Don't just self-alienate and doubt that you're even worthy for that. Like, like God has set his purposes, his promises, and his love on you. Let that stir some affection in you. That he is for us. And ultimately, ultimately, at the end of the day, God has shown his commitment to us through Jesus. Let me read Hebrews 4 to you once again. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Jesus is the culmination of every promise that God ever made in the Old Testament. Like every story, everything that happened leads to Jesus, the Messiah, He's the culmination of everything that God has ever purposed and promised. God has stayed faithful to us through the people of Israel and to us, like in every place in Scripture. Despite us loving other things, committing to different idols, God stayed committed to us. Think about that. For eternity. (laughs) We run away and God continues to stay faithful. Faithful, that we can't approach the throne of God because we have a Savior who has made it possible because of God's commitment to us. So the big question is how do we respond to that as a church? If we really are to see God's commitment in his purposes and his promises and his love, then what do we even do with that, <laughs> right? Like what does that even look like? How do we respond to that? There are two things that I would say. And they're pretty simple. Um, Two things that I would say. The first one, as we think about God's commitment to us, his purposes, his promises, and his love, you know what that should do for us as a church? It should stir our affections for him. Like a yearning for him. Like kneeling on the ground because we see the love and the purposes and the promises that he is giving. That he's, think about this, he's unchanging, right? And in his unchangedness, he has set his purposes, his promises, 
and his love towards his people. And he has sent his son to die on a cross. The payment that you deserve to pay, the death you deserve to die, he died. He took it. Does that stir anything inside of you when you think about that? It should. It absolutely should. And not only has he committed to take the payment of our sin, but he's committed to sustain it. Philippians 1.6, Paul's talking to this church that he dearly loves, that he helped start, and he says this to them as he continues on his missionary journey. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he's committed to take away your sin, and he's committed to sustain you in your faith. Praise God for that. Since God is committed to removing our sin, we should also be committed to destroy the sin that holds us captive. And we do that by the stirring of our affections, that we love what he loves, and we hate what he hates. Think about this. We waste our lives by placing our commitment in things of this world that will give us a moment of satisfaction. We waste our lives. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. Don't settle on something less. Don't. Don't settle on something less. Jesus is always more satisfying, and he's always better. Always. Like, no matter what the enemy or the world tries to put in your mind, that this moment of satisfaction or this moment of thinking like that or whatever it might be is better than Jesus, that it'll be okay because he'll forgive you later. Like, no, he's always better. Always. While I was studying the sermon, I um, kept thinking about the story of Augustine, okay? And so if you know your church history, every theologian is a little weird. Um, Every theologian has something about them, but I love Augustine's conversion story, his salvation story. Um, He was a theologian back in around 300s AD. And Augustine, and listen to this, Augustine was a guy who was consumed with status and sex. So status and lust. Does that sound like our world? (laughs) Wanting to be respected, wanting to be well-known, and then to have this sin that just gripped his soul that was hard to escape. It sounds like us. And so he loved to be well-known and respected, and a chain of events happened where Augustine hears about these guys called monks, okay? So he hears about these guys called monks, these, these monks were living outside the city, living in holiness, but they were going into the city um, to make, to, and they were having like great humanitarian charity impact on the city. And so he hears about Christ, they tell him about Christ, and he begins this struggle, right, between Christianity, so committing to Christ, but then he loved the world. Like the pleasures that he was in, he enjoyed them, and he acknowledged it, and he didn't want to give them up. And so there was this intense struggle in his soul, and so it all culminates um, in this moment where he's in a house with two of his buddies, 
and they are talking about Christ, and they're challenging him, and they're telling him, you know, to, to commit to Christ, and he just gets overwhelmed. And he runs into the backyard, and there's this moment in church history called the Garden Episode, okay? I love it. And so let me read this quote to you from Augustine, as in his book Confessions, as he talks about this crazy scene. It's probably one of the weirdest things that's ever happened in church history, okay? The Garden Episode, as this guy struggles with his sin and committing with Christ. So he says this. He said, I found myself driven in the tumble and breath to take refuge in this garden where no one could interrupt this fierce struggle where I was my own contestant. (laughs) I was beside myself with madness that would bring me sanity. I was dying a death that would bring me life. I was frantic, overcome with violent anger with myself for not accepting your will and entering into your covenant. I tore my hair. I hammered my forehead with my fists. I locked my fingers and hugged my knees and began to wrestle with myself. Do I give up some of the pleasures I'm in for Christ? Can I even do that? Does that sound familiar? He says, he says, I and began to wrestle with, do I give up some of the pleasures I'm in for Christ? Can I even do that? He says, I flung myself down in between a fig tree and gave way to the tears. Into my misery, I cried. And how long have we done this? How long shall I go on saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, why not make an end to my ugly sins now? And then it, it, there's a shift. There's a really weird shift. He says, and then, all at once, I heard the sing-song voice of a child. Whether it was the voice of a girl or a boy, I cannot say. But the voice kept saying, take it and read, take it and read. At this, I looked up, thinking hard if there were any games where these words were said. I stood up, telling myself, this could only be a divine command that I should take my book of scriptures, open it up, and read the first passage that my eyes should follow. What in the world just happened, right? Okay, so Augustine runs to this garden, and he's like tearing his hair out. He's in the fetal position. He's crying. He's like in between a fig tree, right? It's just a crazy scene. Like if you walked up on this guy, you would be freaked out, okay? And so he's just, he's, he's in turmoil, trying to decide, do I give up the pleasures that I'm in for Christ? Why do I need to co- keep going tomorrow? And then all of a sudden, he says, he hears the voice of a child. And the child's saying, take it and read, take it and read. So he dries off his eyes, stands up, and he's like, is there a game those words are said, like, rig around the rosy, no, pocket full of posies, no, duck, duck, goose, no, right? So he goes through kids' games, and he's like, there's no games where those are played. So he just opens his Bible, and this, and the, he looks at the first passage his eyes fall on, and it's this, Romans 13, 13. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. As Augustine, as Augustine reflected on that moment of God saving him, here's what he said, and this is my hope for you, for us as a church. As we hear about God's commitment to us and we think about the sin that we struggle with, the idea of giving up the things of the world that we enjoy, this is my hope for us. As Augustine looked back at that moment, here's what he said. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys that I had once feared to lose. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys that I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true sovereign joy, you drove them from me, and you took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, my wealth, my God, my light, and my salvation. That's what I hope for you. as, As you hear about God's commitment to you and his purposes and his promises and his love, that you would be able to say, how sweet 
All at once, it is for me to be rid of those fruitless joys that I had once feared to lose. The idea of status, money, just fill in the blank of what you want, that you would be free of those fruitless joys, and that he would take their place, because he's sweeter than all pleasure. So the first one is that you would have your affections stirred by him. The second one, as a church, so we think about God's commitment to us, I think think if we really have a good understanding of God's promises, his purposes, and his love, then it'll change the way we pray. It'll change the way we pray. Like, to have a right view of God's commitment to us changes things. It changes how we talk to him. Like, what if we talk to him with actual confidence and boldness instead of not sure if I belong and if I belong here, like, in the presence of God, because of who I am and because of what I've done, that I don't really, I'm not able to talk to God. But what if we prayed with confidence and boldness because God's committed to you? Like, he's committed to you. He's shown it through his son. And what if you prayed like that? <laughs> like, what if you prayed like God was actually committed to you? I think it would change the way we pray. Like, like what if... We actually believed, one, in the power of God. So we believed in the power of God. And then we believed in the commitment of God to us. So what if we actually believe that he separated the Red Sea? Like, took a sea and separated it. What if we believed that? What if we actually believed that Jesus healed the sick? What if we actually believed that Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead? Or what if we actually believed that Jesus himself rose from the grave. So what if we believed in that power, but we also believed that he was committed to us? Do you think that you would pray differently? To approach God with that posture of, God, you are all-powerful, but you are also committed. You are faithful to me. I think you would pray more boldly. I think we would pray with more confidence. Right? Like, like, what if we didn't just ask God to make us feel better or make someone else feel better when they were sick, but we asked God to heal them because we knew that he could? Or what if he asked that God wouldn't just improve our marriage, but that he would restore it because he can, because he can and he's committed? Like, if to have a right view of God's power and God's commitment changes how we approach him. And as a church, we want to be a people that not try to do the work of God without God, but that we center our work around God's work. That we would see his power, see his commitment, and that we wouldn't set goals based on what we think we can accomplish. So like, we're a church this size with this much money and blah, 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 blah. So we think that, God, will you do this? Like, no, that's not how you pray. Like, you pray and you say, God, you work. Show us what you're going to do. And in your own life, you don't say, okay, God, here's what my family's like, here's our struggles, here's the thing, so we think that we can accomplish this. No, you say, God, show your power. What would that look like? Like, God is able to do the things that we are not able to do. So stop praying for things that you can do. (laughs) Pray for things that he can do, because that's how much he's committed to us that if we can just do it, what are we telling him? 
saying we don't really need you. We need to ask God for things that we can't do because he's the only one who's able to do them. He's got the power and he has the commitment to us. Second, we should pray, and I talked about this a little bit, pray as if you have the right to. Because of Jesus being the high priest and the mediator between us and God, he has adopted you as a son or a daughter. So pray as if you belong there. <laughs> pray as a son, pray as a daughter. As if you're, you have the right to talk to your father. Right? Like how many fathers think, my kid just doesn't have the right to talk to me? You're wrong, they're your kid. They have that right. And just so you have the right to speak to your father. You belong in that posture of prayer. And then third, pray with confidence that God will actually respond to your prayer. Like so many times, I think we pray and we walk away from that prayer and we're like, okay, I prayed for it, but I don't actually believe that God's going to do anything. You ever been in that moment? It's like I I prayed, I I did what I was supposed to do, but I don't really believe that God's actually going to fix that issue or fix that marriage or restore that person. Like, we kind of have this seed of doubt that's planted in us because we are so jaded by other people's broken commitments to us or our broken commitments to others. I told you earlier that the, the purposes of God are unchanging. But here's the second part of that. Yes, his purposes are unchanging, but also his plan is unfolding right before us. So yes, his purposes do not change, but his plan, that which we don't know, is unfolding. And God has willed, if you look through Scripture, God has willed to work through willing intercessors. That it is part of his plan that we can be, like this is so humbling, it is part of his plan that he would use his church as the means to which accomplish his purpose. Think about that. Like he has willed to work through willing intercessors. I'll just give you a small sample size of Acts. So just like a real quick blow by of Acts and and I encourage you to go through the whole book and just look at where it says the apostles prayed and what happened afterwards. It's pretty incredible. Acts 2, 42, 43, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and what? And prayer. And then it says this, right after that, and all came upon every soul. They devote themselves to prayer, and then all comes. Acts Three, Peter and John go up to the temple and they begin praying and a lame man walks. Acts 4, the disciples pray for boldness and their place they were meeting literally shook. (laughs) Acts 6, it says they devoted themselves to prayer and it says the word of God continued to increase. And then a few verses later, it says the disciples were multiplying greatly in Jerusalem. Acts 7, Stephen prays. And Acts 8, the church scatters. For the first time, mobilizing through the world. Acts 10, Cornelius is praying, and God sends him to Peter, whom God revealed to Peter in a vision that all things are now clean, thus allowing the Gentiles to be saved. Acts 12, I love this one, Peter's in jail, okay? And the church is praying for him. It says, but earnest prayer for him was made for God by the church, and then an angel pokes him and leads him out. (laughs) And then Acts 13, it says, Church leaders are worshiping and praying, and the Spirit says, set apart for me Paul and Barnabas, and a missionary movement begins. Like, I don't know what you believe about prayer, but you need to believe this, that God has willed to work through us, through our prayers. So your prayer matters. His purposes are unchanging. His promises are unchanging. His love for us is unchanging, and he has willed to work 
through his church. And so we have to have a strong commitment to God. So let me be clear. He's not dependent on us to work, but he has included us in the work as a gift of grace. That we get to be a part of what God is doing. So your commitment matters. That our response to his commitment to us is to sit at his feet, praise him, thank him, confess to him, and ask. That we would ask boldly. I'm out of time, so let me just say this. Um, If we really are to commit to God as a church, then there's two things we need. One, we need each other. We need each other. In Hebrews 11, um, he, the author of Hebrews goes through the hall of faith, right? So all the people that have come before us. And that's in there for a reason. It's in there so that we could see people that are like us who have done it. People who are like us who have committed well. And my, my prayer for you is that, and maybe you've experienced this in your life, but in this church you would find folks that are committed, like you see that they're really committed to the Lord, and you would gravitate towards them. Like you would grab onto them strongly. Like I can think of Jamie Sanfield and Helen Reese and Kathy Sanfield and, and Jason Goings, and I can go down the list of people that I'm who I am today because I've seen people who have committed to Jesus well. And my encouragement to you is that you would find someone and you would grab onto them. And you'd say, show me. How do you commit to Jesus? Show me what that looks like. We need each other to remind each other that we need him. Does that make sense? And the second thing is, if we are really going to commit to God, then we have to continue to look to Jesus. Have to continue to look to Jesus. And so let me finish with that Hebrews 12 passage, and then I'll pray for us. And I just want you to listen to this word. Did you think about God's commitment to us, and in return your commitment to him? This is what we strive for as a church. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely. And here's what he says, And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.